Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me. I thought I would respond to patron emails. What do you say? What do you say? This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a therapist. The first email is from patron Slade. I like that name, Slade. Sounds like a like a cop like that doesn't like to follow the rules. Detective Slade. He's on the case again. He's going to get his man, but he's not going to follow the rules while doing it. And he's going to piss off the captain of the force. You know that's going to happen. And he doesn't have a partner, but he's going to get stuck with one, and comedy will ensue. Patron Slade writes in, says, Thank you for the podcast. I've been a self-injurer for 26 years and recently relapsed after a few years of being injury-free. This is one of the best sources of information I have come across. Thank you for being comprehensive and compassionate. Uh, I should have read that email before I went on that um, silly jag about Patron Slade's name. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Patron Slade is re- uh, referring to the episode that I did about non-suicidal self-injury. And Patron Slade is saying, I was a self-injurer for 26 years and recently relapsed after a few years of, of being sober from injury. And Patron Slade this said, this is one of the best sources of information that they have come across. And Patron Slade thanks me for being comprehensive and compassionate. If I'm nothing else, I'm comprehensive, right? When it comes to particular topics, I often will laugh at myself. Uh, I will say, well, I'll do a short little episode about self-injury. And then I go down the rabbit hole of research and uh, best practices and all this kind of stuff. And and then I record the podcast, and it's, you know, two, three, four hours long. I can't remember how long the self-injury was, one was, but I remember thinking it was way longer than I thought it would be. So it's a little bit of a curse of mine that I, you know, tend to talk too much and tend to research things too thoroughly. But anyway, so you're welcome, Patron Slate. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed the, the podcast. I actually learned a lot about it. I, you know, have been treating people with self-injury for many years and have had an emerging wisdom about it. But having looked at so much research for that episode, it really helped me to galvanize my understanding and the treatment of it and to, uh, you know, spread the word regarding um, the myths of self-injury, you know, that it's just to get attention or that, it is a sign that someone is crazy or I don't know, whatever. But it's, you know, it. in a nutshell, my thesis and other people's theses is that the purpose of it is often to reduce suffering. When someone is suffering emotionally uh, so severely, they will try various different ways of mitigating or alleviating that psychic pain. And one of the things that people will experiment with randomly is self-injury and they find that it actually works. It will actually reduce their suffering temporarily. It carries with it side effects, you know, like blood and infection and other kinds of things, uh, stigma, but it, it works. And so that's why people do it. There's a very small set of people that will do it, quote unquote, to get attention. But at the same time, even if it isn't because they're suffering greatly emotionally and they're, quote unquote, merely doing it because they want attention, 
imagine how desperate you would be for attention if you decided to cut yourself to get it. So it shouldn't be dismissed just because, quote unquote, they're doing it to get attention. It should indicate that the person is at least suffering enough that we should do what we can to help them so that they don't need to resort to that social thing to get attention that they feel like they are not getting. It's one of those things that we just have in our society. It was just like, well, you know, that kid's just trying to get attention. Don't don't give him or her attention. Well, if they're if they're doing something so severe to get attention, then it, you know it's possible that they are being neglected and they need extra help. And for those kids who don't re- resort to those kinds of behaviors, they have you know been given enough attention. Okay, the next patron email is from Patron MJ. Patron MJ writes, My recent breakup got me interested in psychology. I believe my ex has borderline personality disorder. I was super hurt and traumatized by him. So I researched borderline personality disorder to heal myself. Incidentally, as I grew up, I watched my parents fight a lot. My mom never left my dad. And now I tend to stay in abusive relationships. My therapist pointed out I still have suppressed feelings toward my dad and it comes out in my relationship. I am pretty open with sharing and getting in touch with my emotions, but in certain situations with certain feelings, I find it hard to figure out how deep down the feelings are coming from. I am still confused if these feelings are from my childhood. I get angry when, I, when I'm put in a vulnerable situation like not being loved or not being protected or not being validated by my, by my partner's love. I am curious how I could communicate truthfully about my feelings and find a healthy way to heal the trauma from my childhood. Well, patron MJ, this is a extremely common issue for a lot of us and a very complicated one. And it depends on a lot of things. But if I were to make some guesses about your situation, some some common issues that are that are often associated with what you're talking about, I might be able to say the following. First off, it's great that you're in therapy. The things that you struggle with are perfect for therapy. It's one of the things that therapists are uh, really perfect for and perhaps the only professional that can really help you with this sort of thing which is talking about how you truly feel in a in the context of a relationship, a caring, empathic relationship, an ongoing relationship, and that your therapist can uh, learn about you and, and you know that your therapist knows a lot about you. And you can receive a lot of corrective experiences from your therapist around the, you know, being treated well in the face of vulnerability. Your therapist can help you to sift through your feelings and to uh, express feelings that you did suppress as a child, help you with figuring out what uh, feelings and impulses are healthy and which ones might be destructive. For instance, you're confused. You're trying to figure out, it's like, well, I can't, I, I, I can't really figure out how to uh, think about my feelings and 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 how to communicate my feelings in a healthy way and that's that's very complicated because if you grow up in a family where feelings were not expressed or felt in a healthy way 
then of course you're going to have difficulty knowing how to do that. For instance, if every time someone got frustrated, you know, every every time you saw your father, every time he got frustrated with his with his wife, your mom, he became abusive, a- angry and unreasonable. If if that's what you saw, then that's what you learn and then that's what you learn to that's becomes your normal. You end up seeing that as normal and you end up seeing that as as associated with love. You might associate it with men, like, well, that's just how men are. You might even think that uh, men are supposed to be that way. And if men, if a man doesn't do that sort of thing, then he's not a real man. We can't avoid or escape the internalizations that occur as we're growing up. We don't have the ability to look at our family, particularly our parents, and say objectively in our mind, well, that's just my parents. It's not all parents. My, my dad is abusive, but, you know, that's just my dad. You know, my dad is crazy. There's something wrong with them. The rest of the world is, is a good place with, filled with dads that don't do this sort of thing. When you're a child, particularly a young child, you have no clue that your dad is different or strange. Or you might suspect, but at the very least, you think of it as as a normal thing and or you just learn to accept it as a normal thing because you're trapped and there's no choice but to just consider it normal and acceptable because you have to accept it. And so that changes your compass regarding what is is healthy behavior and what isn't it changes your idea of what love means and what attachment means it changes your idea of your own emotions yourself of what you're allowed quote-unquote to feel and and what is fair to for you to feel and what's fair for you to say people who are abused often will feel as though nothing that they want is is deserved and nothing that they feel is is worth being expressed you know they're they're in a romantic relationship you know patron mj might suffer from this kind of uh this kind of situation where mj is uh with his or her partner with their partner and the partner's being abusive and MJ is thinking, I don't like this, but, but I don't deserve any better because, and this is all unconscious and might be partially conscious too, but, but mainly unconscious, which is as a child, I wasn't allowed to feel my feelings. I wasn't allowed to feel safe and therefore I'm not allowed to in this situation. The way you are treated growing up gives you that foundational sense of what is fair and what is right and what is normal. And emerging from a destructive, unhealthy, abusive family into adulthood, it takes a lot of work to figure out, you know, what impulses and what assessments you make of the world are healthy and which are not. And it can take decades of therapy, honestly. It's a, it's a long process. It's, it's very, it's very uh, difficult, particularly if you have trauma syndromes like PTSD or something that have, 
that have affected your brain in such a way that you, when triggered, have no control over your emotional uh, dysregulation. There are people that I know, and really all of us have at least some some of this uh, to some degree. But but all but I, I know people who will relationally, when they're triggered by just everyday life, like driving home from work or making dinner with their spouse or parenting or a child acting up or just, just, you know, just regular everyday life that, you know, for all of us is at least slightly stressful, but for them triggers something inside of them that creates a a cascade of regression and defenses and difficulty that results in extreme uh, suffering, extreme emotionality, extreme difficulty relationally for the person to cope and to manage relationships in that moment. They might lash out. They might uh, cry uncontrollably for a while. And there's nothing strange about that or, or pathological, but it when you have, when you grow up with a lot of abuse, it can be uh, particularly difficult and particularly shameful to the person. That's one of the, just this, just such a tragedy when it comes to children who suffer from abuse is as adults, they're, they're so ashamed of themselves and they're so ashamed of, of things they should never be ashamed of. I have a supervisee right now who suffers, had suffered from, childhood difficulties and they um, have recently started to wrestle with those feelings and, and how it, how, when they're working with clients, how their clients will trigger and touch upon those wounds. And all therapists will uh, contemplate this throughout their career, hopefully. But this, this therapist is, is hitting a particular you know, a moment of intense wrestling with that. And the, the theme of this therapist, this trainee's experience is shame and how they feel that they shouldn't be having these feelings and how they should be better. They sh- they should know how to suppress their feelings or get over the feelings or something and even though everyone is telling this person you should not be ashamed there's no there's nothing abnormal about what you're saying it's totally normal and it's fine particularly given your circumstances this this therapist deep down believes there's something wrong with them that they should not feel this way and that they they should be you know beyond it or they should be able to let it go or they they should be stronger quote unquote and that is to me just such a tragedy because not only did this therapist in training suffer from abuse and not only did this therapist in training choose a profession to try to help others recover and prevent and mitigate abuse. But now as they are trying to help people, this abuse is being triggered and they have a normal reaction and they're just deeply ashamed of themselves. Like there's something deeply broken or wrong with them and it couldn't be farther from the truth. It's just so 
normal to have those feelings. And I spent a lot of time trying to normalize the feelings that this trainee is experiencing and say, I have those exact same feelings and I've been in the profession for 20 years and I know people who have been in the profession for 40 years and still have those exact same feelings. So there's, there's, there's not only nothing wrong with you, but you're actually like right down the middle of normalcy. You're just, it's, this is like typical reactivity to, to human experience. And you, you know, my hope is that the trainee will not be ashamed because it pains me to think about them beating themselves up on the inside about that. And so to patron MJ, I'll, I'll say it, it's, it's a process that takes a long time and typically is done in the context of a caring, compassionate relationship with a therapist, which you're doing. And so I, I guess my main advice is just to continue doing that. Also, you mentioned that your partner may be suffering from borderline and regardless of whether or not that's a, an accurate label, it's clear that you're having some troubles in your relationship and you, and you feel that you're, oh no, it's, it's an ex. So you're no longer in a relationship. Okay. I believe my ex has borderline. I was super hurt and traumatized by him. Well, I'll say, you know, good for you for not being involved with someone who was abusive. I commend you for that. So that's a good sign. And you say here that you tend to stay in abusive relationships. And the general thing I'll say to that is the cure for that is to stay in therapy and work through these childhood experiences and grieve the experiences. By that, I mean, you talk about them, you feel the feelings, you you, when you're able to, you go back to that in your mind and really wrestle with what happened. You might even go to your parents and tell them what happened and how you feel about it. You receive caring from people. You, you start telling your story. You start being, you know, after the, the analogy I like to tell people is imagine tomorrow or today you're in a, a terrible car accident. You're on the freeway and this car doesn't look in their blind spot and just hits you. You go spinning and you, you think you're a, you're going to die and you slam into another car and then you slam into the barrier and you're, you're shaken up and another, you know, and then the aid car comes and you go to the hospital and your family comes to see you and you stay overnight and they check your spine and you have some cuts and bruises and the next day you're released from the hospital and you, you, you just feel kind of this surreal sense of like, my God, I'm alive. I thought I was going to be dead. Okay. So imagine that's what happens to you. And then imagine you go home and you say, uh, so yesterday I got in this car, you're telling your family and your family tells you to shut up and your family tells you, if you mention another word about your stupid car crash, uh, I'm going to kill you or, or something. Uh, imagine that happening to you. And then imagine you go to work and people are like, I don't want to fucking hear about your car crash. All right. Even though you've never told them about it. This is like the, the first time you open your mouth about this incredible 
life-altering, life-threatening event, everyone around you tells you to shut up and you can't talk about it. And you don't have anyone to share your experience with and you don't have anyone to witness what happened to you. You have, you have nobody that cares seemingly and you have, it's all just sort of rolling around in your head. Your head hits the pillow at night and you see the car crash before you and you have all these different experiences. You know, there's this one nurse that was nice and this other nurse that was a jerk and, and the driver that hit you, you, you know, it's like, you know, who is this woman and why did she do this? And she could have killed me. And, ah, you know, you have all these thoughts and it's just rolling around in your head and you have all these feelings and no one wants to hear it and no one supports you and no one allows you to talk about it. That is what growing up with abuse is like every day. Every day as a child, you can have that, you know, an analogous situation to that every day or say every other day, and you never get to talk about it. And that's what therapy is all about, my friend, is an adult comes in and they eventually feel safe enough to start telling those stories and one by one, they start telling the stories and they're intense and they, you know, they emerge like they happened yesterday. So when I was 10, my dad came home and he was drunk and I could tell right away just by the way he was walking up the stairs. I just knew, I just knew when he was drunk and he started yelling at my mom, which he, that was always the first thing he would do. And then my older sister would run interference by trying to defend my mom. And then I would get, I would, by now I'd just be terrified. My distress level would be at a, at a nine out of 10. And I would go into my room and I would hide under the covers. And, but I knew eventually my dad was going to bust into my room and start yelling at me about something, whether it was school or not cleaning enough or, or whatever. I just knew eventually it would happen. And I, all I wanted it to do was just, I just wanted to disappear and I just wanted it to be over. And I, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. And I was terrified. So that's one event that, you know, like the car crash, if you went through a car crash like that, you would talk about it for months. And maybe a couple years later, you're at a, you know, dinner party and someone says, has anyone ever been in a car crash? And you're like, oh my God, I have. Let me tell you about it. And you, and you tell the story and it's therapeutic and it feels good to tell the story, to feel the feelings and to have someone else care and understand what happened to you. Well, again, for children that come out of abusive families, when they're adults, they have a long, long backup, a pileup, a, a backlog, if you will, of stories that need to be talked about in length in full and explored and ruminated on and reflected. And, you know, it's not just like, let me tell you about this one story. Okay. Next story. Da, 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 da. It's, it's wrapped up in, in feelings and in current things, you know, there's, there's insights that happen as people start talking about us. So, oh, so maybe that's why I have low self-esteem or, Maybe that's why violent movies freak me out. That's interesting. You know, I've never made that connection 
or maybe that's why that particular cologne bothers me or that's maybe that's why I'm attracted to alcoholic men because I'm you know I'm I'm just trying to recreate my childhood geez you know I should avoid men who drink and you know there's just all these things that that emerge and and need to be heard by somebody there it's not enough just to just to journal although that can help it's not enough just to ruminate about it in silence in the darkness it it needs to be discussed relationally, and that's why therapy will never die, because computers can can take away some things from our profession. They can actually take away DBT to some extent. They, they, they can they can there's certain things in cognitive behavioral therapy that can be automated, and researchers have successfully automated cognitive behavior therapy in in some ways. And shown that, you know, to reduce anxiety, uh, a computer based, basically it's just a workbook uh, that's on the that's on the Web can be just as effective as CBT to reduce anxiety with, with a live therapist. But the one thing that computers and workbooks will never, ever take away from our profession is the relational healing aspects of a real human being. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, they got AI coming out that and some AI is, you know, convincing as a human being. I have I've I've played around with those AI. Believe me, none of them are convincing as human beings. I mean, there's some of them that are like when you limit yourself to very particular sentences like hello and it says hello and you're like, how are you? It's like, I'm fine. How are you? If you just limit yourself to to very uh, a limited set of of communication, uh, you know, elements like 0.1% of the possibilities that would happen in, in a conversation, then yeah, it can, it could trick you into thinking that it's a real human. But when you actually start getting into a real conversation, AI is, is, has a long way to go. Now, eventually it will. I mean, it's just a matter of time. I'm convinced, but, but, um, we're far from that, far, far from that. And, uh, you know, and when that day comes, probably not even in my lifetime, uh, then those therapists will have to, I suppose, contend with AI therapists. But I even suspect that that will be not as sufficient or I don't know. Now that I think about it, let me go down this little thought experiment right now. I bet you in some ways, AI therapists. So assuming that at some point in the future, you know, 200 years from now or something, we have AI that is like absolutely convincingly human and there's no way you can, they, they can converse. They, they have personalities, they have emotions, you know, everything is, is totally, uh, you know, human seeming. Well, in some ways, uh, an AI therapist, I think won't be as good because people, human beings love other human beings. We're, we're obsessed with other humans. The, um, the thing that I, I remember someone telling me once is, you know, when ants see other ants, they like their antenna, like bounce off the other ants and then they, they move on. But when, so whenever they bounce into another ant, they, you know, antenna, 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 and then they move on. Same thing with dogs. You know, when two dogs meet at the dog park, you know, they're, they're just fascinated with each other and they sniff and they, you know, and they're, they're anxious around each other. And, and so us human beings, you know, we're also just completely fascinated with other humans and, AI we know is not another human uh, and cannot benefit from the relational aspects of therapy that 
that the idea of a human can provide. Having said that, I could see AI therapy being better in some ways because it isn't a human being and the client is uh, perhaps feels safer telling things to an AI because the AI presumably doesn't have flaws or, you know, doesn't have confidentiality threats or, you know, it's just an interesting thought to have. Anyway, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 